This message by Mike Pluniak was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Mike serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck down the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. May God... Bless the preaching of His Holy Word today and unite our hearts to fear His name. A.W. Tozer once wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Tozer, when he wrote that about 60 years ago, was deeply concerned that the church at large was on a dangerous course of losing its ability to think great thoughts about God. As he looked around, it seemed like Christians were distracted. It seemed that God had become smaller in their eyes. And when God became smaller, he said, they became bigger and God became a tool to meet whatever needs they had. I wonder what Tozer would think today. He said the low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. As we approach our text this morning, the people in our text have a low view of God. And we're going to see all these evils come among them because of how they are thinking about God. These chapters are historically low moment for the nation of Israel. They are defeated by the Philistines, so Israel are the people of God called out of Egypt. God has called them, made them into a people. He's brought them into this land. The Philistines are their enemy. They're defeated by the Philistines. The ark of God is captured. God's presence and glory departs from them. The Israelites have a low view of God. The Philistines have a low view of God. And all these troubles come upon them because they don't grasp the greatness and the holiness of God. And we're going to find that God is going to make Himself known to them. We're going to see in these chapters God moving and God acting. God revealing His power. And this is recorded and preserved for us today so that we might think great thoughts about God. Let's learn from them. Let's learn how we are to think about God. And I think this is the main point I want us to get from these chapters. The main point is 
You can't put God in a box. And hopefully by the end, you're going to get the irony of that main point because it's all about the story of the Ark of the Covenant, which is a box that they believe contains God. And we're going to learn you can't put God in a box. And since we're looking at three chapters, three main points this morning, three points we're going to look at. Point number one is you can't use God. You can't use God. Here's what's going on in chapter 4. Okay, as we read this text, Israel is going to battle against the Philistines, and they lose pretty bad. And so in verse 3 of our text, the elders of Israel understand, this is very interesting if you look back at verse 3, they understand that it is the Lord who has defeated them. They view the Philistines as being passive in this battle and God as being the active one. So God has defeated them before the Philistines. But instead of asking why, why did God defeat us? Why is God opposing us? They come up with this plan. So they decide that they are going to go and get God and bring God to the battle and force God to fight for them. And so they go to Shiloh, they get the Ark of the Covenant, and they bring it to the battle. If you're not familiar with the Ark, it's a, it's a decorated wooden box that God commanded them to make in Exodus. It's about three and a half feet long by two and a half feet wide, two and a half feet tall, covered in gold inside and out. It contained a copy of the Ten Commandments, and the Ark of the Covenant typically stayed within the most holy place in the temple uh, or the tabernacle and later the temple. And it stayed behind a veil and it was usually covered. It was a very holy thing. It represented God's rule and God's law and God's presence to Israel. It was a visible sign of the power and presence of God. So when they get in trouble and they lose this battle, they think, let's bring this ark to the battle, and God will be forced to fight for us and not against us, probably thinking because God is going to protect His honor and His people, and He will fight for us. And they should have asked, why is God fighting against us? And in verse 5, when the ark comes through, the soldiers, this is an interesting scene, this, the soldiers are super jazzed, right? They give out this mighty shout and it shakes the earth. They're so excited that God has come into the battle. They've gotten whooped once. They're, they're pulling out their secret weapon and they're treating God like a magic genie who will come out and grant their wishes. And I get it. I, I'm th I put myself in their shoes this week and I thought, I get it. We've all been in a desperate place where we need God at times, right? When we don't study for the test and we show up the morning of the test and we say, okay, God, come on, show your power today. I know you can do this. I believe. You should have studied for the tests. And here's the problem in our text. Look at who's carrying the ark in verse 4. It's Eli's son's Hophni and Phinehas. Now, if you've read chapters 1 through 3, then you know these sons of Eli are described as worthless men. It says they did not know the Lord. They treated 
the Lord's offering with contempt. They were sexually immoral. And when Eli confronts them, they refuse to listen to Eli. They're they're the priests of God and they are defaming God's name through their service. And so God says that it's His will to put them to death. So God tells Eli this in chapter 2, verse 34. God tells Samuel this when he speaks to Samuel in the night. Chapter 3, verse 13. Samuel tells Eli this again in chapter 3. And then finally by 4.1, Samuel speaks this word to all of Israel. He tells Israel, here's God's will. These priests are unholy. They're defaming God's glory and God's name. It's God's will to put them to death. They lose in battle. They go get the ark. And here come these two men that God has said, they don't please me. They're carrying the ark. And they are shouting and cheering for them. Do you see a problem here? God is about to punish them and the people are cheering for them. They were trying to use God to fight for them, but they were unwilling to listen to God and repent and humble themselves before them. They thought God was there to serve them rather than they existed to serve God. They're not seeking God, but trying to control God. They're not submitting to God, but trying to use Him. They had a low view of God. God was there to meet their needs. And there's a lesson here we can learn. You can't use God. The power of God cannot be manipulated by people. And I think this is, is relevant today because there's a message out there that if I, if I do this for God, then I'll be successful. Then God will be forced to prosper me and bless me. That God operates on some kind of karma basis. Many of the largest churches in America preach this message, this health and wealth gospel. It is alive and well all around us. And they call this the law of compensation. Okay, According to this law, Christians need to give generously because when they do, God gives more in return financially to us. One preacher said this, Give $10 and receive 1000 Give 1000 and receive 100000 And they're taking what Jesus says in Mark 10.30, that he gives a hundredfold, literally, that if we give, he's going to give back a hundredfold in cash, right? It's an attempt to manipulate God, to use God to bless us. God becomes a tool to achieve the desire that we want, the end, which is wealth, Or for the Israelites, victory, they're trying to use God. And if we're not careful, we can think this way. If I do something good, God will give me what I want. Or the flip side can be, if you give me what I want, then I'll serve you, God. It's not how God operates. We exist to serve God. We are here for God's glory, for God's will. God is not here to serve our will. They're trying to use God. And by the end of chapter 4, what we find is the worst possible tragedy has struck Israel. 
Israel is defeated in battle. The army is disbanded. If you keep looking down, we're not going to have time to read all these verses, but Eli finds that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. He's old at this point. He falls and snaps his neck. Eli dies. His sons are dead. And then it ends with this sad story. Look down in chapter 4, verses 19 through 22. This story about Phineas's wife who is pregnant. And she's about to go into labor and she hears her husband is dead. Her father-in-law, the judge of Israel, is dead. And then she finds out the ark of God has been captured. And she goes into labor. She dies because of childbirth. And her last act is to name her son Ichabod. The glory of God has departed. God has departed Israel. And you would think... End of the story, right? They lose. God has left them. The ark is God, is, is, is captured. End of our Bibles, but not quite. Point number two, you can't make God serve your idols. You can't make God serve your idols. You can't use God. You can't put God in a box. You can't make God serve your idols. I'm sure the Israelites thought, Oh no, we've lost God. You know, he, he was ours and we've lost him. Yet the story isn't over. And what's interesting about these chapters is you'll find after chapter 4, verse 1, you'll find no mention of Samuel, no mention of a king. The only leaders we see in these chapters are ones who die. It's because God is the main character as he is in all of Scripture. God doesn't need you to protect him or keep him safe, he is about to show them that he is quite capable of taking care of himself. And I'm sure at this point, the Philistines are feeling pretty good as well. They defeated Israel not just once, but twice, and they captured Israel's God in this box. They've defied the God of Israel, gotten away with it, or so it seems. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. That's their God. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. See, the assumption here for the Philistines is since they won the battle, Dagon is greater than the God of Israel. And so they bring the ark, which is a representation of Israel's God, and they place it beside Dagon in a position of being a servant. See, they're placing the God of Israel as a servant to their more superior God, Dagon. And when you read this section, there's meant to be some humor in it. 
where Dagon is viewed as this sort of Humpty Dumpty who falls and can't be put back together again. And you can just feel as you read it, the narrator is enjoying this, okay? You ever had a story that you love to tell again and again because either someone else or yourself is humiliated in the story? My kids are always telling me, Dad, Dad, tell the story about that time you struck out at the end of the game and you threw yourself down and were crying in front of everybody. That's hilarious. Or, Dad, tell us about how you kept breaking open your chin because you didn't catch yourself when you fell. That's the funniest story. I always go, yeah, it's real funny to you, you know. This is, this is meant to be humorous. We're meant to laugh at this. One commentator said this. He said, I think the writer probably had tongue-in-cheek, twinkle-in-eye, and acid-in-ink when he wrote most matter-of-factly, so they took Dagon and put him back in place. You just picture his kid saying, Dad, tell us the story again about the God who had to be picked up by others. Tell us that story. And that's what he's trying to show us. This is humorous. Verse 3, they put God in a position of submission. And when they come in the next morning, their God is laying face down before this God. He's bowing down before him. That's why Scripture calls us to bow down sometimes. It's a position of submission before God. We are submitting ourselves to the God of the universe. And Dagon is submitting himself to the God of Israel, Yahweh. And then we're supposed to laugh as, as we picture them picking their God up and putting him back in his place. And just to show it's no accident, God does it again the next night. He's face down again right before God, except this time God cuts off his head and his hands. Fulfilling Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2.10, for she says, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. And Dagon is broken before God. And there's a pattern here that we find true in our own lives. God will not serve or submit to our idols. He shatters them. God does not play second fiddle. He doesn't do it. He won't do it. We read the story of Dagon, and we can think, how does this apply today? I mean, idolatry immediately conjures up pictures of primitive people bowing down to statues. And yet, Scripture teaches us that our hearts are not so different from theirs. That each person is tempted to put their trust and their hope in something other than God. We have our own set of idols. We might not bow down to Dagon, but when beauty and money and success and desire for love or desire for respect begin to control our lives, we are trusting in an idol. We make those things the center of our lives and, and we begin to think, if I can only attain this, then I'll be happy or satisfied. And they become, these things become a functional God to us, our Dagon. Here's what Tim Keller says. He says, we may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive 
concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. Whatever we put our hope in, our trust in, whatever we sacrifice for, that is what we are worshiping. And really anything, especially good things, can become idols in our hearts. And so if you're taking notes, write down this sentence, okay? Write this down. If I could only have blank, draw a blank. If I could only have blank, then I'd be happy and satisfied. If I could only have this thing, if I could only have this job, then I'd be happy and satisfied. Anything other than God in the blank is an idol. Now, when you think about it, anything, even good things, can become idols in our hearts. Cars, houses. If I could only have that house, then I'd be happy. If I could only have more space, if I could only have that car, even things like phones, if I only had the newest phone, then I'd be happy. Anything can, can become an idol. Changing our circumstances. If I can only have this job, if I can only be in a relationship, if I could only have some peace and quiet, then I'd be happy and satisfied relationships. People can become idols. Anything we put in the blank to bring meaning to our lives other than God. And then what happens is, is we bring God into the mix. We set up our idol. If I can only have this, then I'll be happy. And then we bring God into the mix and we position God next to our idol and we ask God to serve our idol by giving us those things. And God won't do it. God shatters it. He won't serve our idols. And we learn from 1 Samuel 5, God bows down to no idols. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money, which goes for all of our idols. God won't have it. We need a greater view of God as being the all-powerful, all-sufficient, all-satisfying Lord of our lives where no idol can compare, no idol can satisfy, no idol can excite us and bring us the joy like knowing God. I want in my heart to say, if I only have you, God, then I'll be happy and satisfied. And the good news is, I do have you. You've made yourself known. You've made a way. You provided a Savior. And now my soul is satisfied. If I don't get that, if I don't have this, if I lose this, I'll be okay because I still have my God. Can't make God serve your idols. Can't put God in a box. Can't use God. You can't make God serve your idols. But point three, you can trust God you can trust God knows what He is doing. You can trust God knows what He is doing. This is what we see in the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6. Because what happens now is after God, the Ark of the Covenant, comes into the Philistines, comes into the land of the Philistines, this 
conquered God goes on a victory tour through the Philistine cities wreaking havoc wherever he goes. So what happens here is the ark had fallen into the Philistines' hands, but what's really happening is the Philistines have fallen into God's hands. Look at chapter 5, verse 6. Okay, You're meant to pick up on some imagery here the, the, the writer is giving to us. Chapter, chapter 5, verse 6, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. See, as Dagon lays in the dirt, handless, his hands cut off, this God's hands are quite active against the people. He is an active God. He's not a passive God. He's not a God who can't accomplish what He wants. He can do, He does whatever He wants. And He begins to afflict them with tumors. And they begin to die. And these plagues are breaking out. It's meant to remind us of what happened in Egypt with Pharaoh and the Egyptian when they wouldn't let God's people go. These plagues are breaking out. And they say in Ashdod, this God can't stay here. And so they decide to send him to Gath. Now, I'd really like to know what the people of Gath thought about that proposal. But it doesn't look like they ask. And so in verse 9, it happens again in Gath. These tumors break out. These plagues break out. And it causes a very great panic. It's like the Israelites in battle fleeing. The Philistines are now fleeing from this God. And so they start freaking out. And so they decide to send the ark to Ekron, which is also in Philistine. And so in verse 10, when they try to send it to Ekron, they say, oh, no, you don't. Nobody asked us if that could come here. And so they, they make this plan to send it back to Israel. Listen, when you read this, you have to understand, God knows what he is doing. The defeat of Israel in battle was God's judgment against the wicked sons of Eli. He allows the ark to be captured. Why? So that he could accomplish judgment on Israel's enemies. And he didn't need Israel to do it. He didn't need them. God doesn't need his people to defeat the Philistines. He can do that all by himself. He allows that to happen. He preserves his glory. He preserves his name. He, he preserves his honor. Even through defeat, he's guarding his honor. He's conquering his enemies. And he's doing this all apart from the Israelites. And now Israel's enemies are forced to give God glory. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. So, so they're trying to decide. It's been there seven months. Verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And so they bring in their religious officials and say, what do we do? And they come up with this plan to make, this is bizarre, I know, okay? They come up with these five golden images of tumors How'd you like to be a tumor model? Like, we need to make an image of your tumor. They make these five golden tumors, five golden mice. It's called sympathetic magic. They thought, if we make an image of this plague and offer it to this God, that he will stop doing this to us. And so they make this offering, and they decide to send the ark back to Israel. They want to get rid of it. And look at verse 5. It says, So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice, that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps He will lighten His hand from off you and your gods 
and your land. God will have his glory. God is glorious. It's what makes us love God. He is glorious and mighty and majestic and holy. And the same glory that makes us love him, if we defy him, it terrifies us. That's what's happening here. The Philistines, when you read this, the Philistines don't love God and his glory. It terrifies them, and they want to get rid of it. They're saying, get this out of here. Get this God away from us. He is terrifying us. He's causing a great panic. He scares us. We are forced to give glory to the God of Israel. And what you see here is though God appears to be defeated, it's this conquered God who will get glory from his enemies. And think about it. Think about it. We see this later on in Scripture as well, don't we? Where God appears to be conquered by his enemies. Isn't that the story of the cross? Where God appears defeated, his presence gone, his followers abandoned. As Jesus hangs on the cross, it appears like he was defeated and conquered and overtaken by his enemies and betrayed by his people. Death had won or so it seemed. And yet Jesus rises from the grave victorious. The conquered Messiah is actually conquering sin and death and the grave and his enemies. And he's using it victoriously to redeem and ransom and save his people. God knew exactly what he was doing. God knows what he's doing. Though at times he may appear defeated, appear conquered. God can use that to redeem and save and bring glory to His name. There are no surprises to our God. And in this historically low moment of Israel, God is at work for His glory, making Himself known. So after seven months, the ark returns to Israel, and the people rejoice, and they live happily ever after. Right? You know the Bible well enough to go, no, that's not right. Something's wrong here. Look down at verse 13. They're so happy when it returns, but they still haven't learned how they should think about their God. Chapter 6, verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. So the Philistines come up with this plan to put the ark on these cows, to put their babies back home, and they say if the, if the cows go to Israel, then we'll know it's God. And that's exactly what happens. And it comes into this field, and they see the ark being brought on uh, by these two cows, and they begin to rejoice. The ark has come back to Israel. Now flip over to verse 19. Chapter 6, verse 19. They still haven't learned how to think about God. Verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. He killed them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. 
It wreaks havoc on the Philistines and now on some of the Israelites. What happened? It says that they looked on the ark. They gazed at the ark. I'm not sure if that means they opened it or looked into it or if they were just staring at it, but even Indiana Jones knows you don't look at the ark. You don't do it. Bad things happen. Numbers 4 strictly said that it was to be covered. It was a visible representation of God. It was meant to be in the most holy place. And so what's going on here is they're approaching it casually instead of a reverence and awe and fear. See, in chapter 4, where we started, they treated it like a magic rabbit foot. And in chapter 6, they're treating it like it's a beautiful piece of furniture. They're still learning the lesson God wants them to learn. 1 Samuel reminds us that He is a holy, holy, holy God. That He has a holy power. That He demands a holy reverence. That you can't put God in a box. And after He wipes out 70 of them, and they die, the people who were once rejoicing begin to mourn. And finally, after going and getting him and trying to force him to fight for them, and, and God traveling to the land of the Philistines and conquering them, though he appeared conquered, finally in verse 20. Look at verse 20 of chapter 6, where we're going to end this morning. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Now, they're thinking rightly about God. Now they're getting it. Now they're beginning to understand He is holy. He's absolutely perfect in every way. He is powerful. His wrath is terrifying. You don't just approach this God. You don't just come to Him casually. You don't just get Him and force Him to come to fight for you. This is a holy, powerful, mighty, majestic God, and who is able to stand before him? What are we going to do with him? Dagon cannot stand before this God. The Philistines cannot stand before this God. Even the Israelites cannot stand before this God. Can anyone stand before his holiness and his power and his might and not be destroyed? They're finally having a high view of God. Can you stand before God? Do you want to stand before this God in His holiness and His power? No one can stand before God. And as God's history unfolds, we find one man. One man who can stand before God and not be destroyed. One who obeyed God in every way. One who always did exactly what the Father willed, even to the point of death, death on a cross. He alone is righteous enough and clean enough and holy enough to come and stand before this holy God. But instead of coming and standing before this holy God, He chose instead to come before God, not in His holiness, but carrying our sins. And when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
It's because he's confronted with this holy God. And he's confronted with our sinfulness. He's the one man who can stand before this holy God and not be destroyed. And yet he chooses to be destroyed for our sake because of his great love for us. You cannot stand by yourself before this holy God. You will be destroyed. You will bear His wrath for your sins. And Hebrews tells us this about this one man. Hebrews 7.25 He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. Who can stand before this holy God? We and ourselves cannot stand before this holy God. We cannot come into His presence. And yet you can draw near to God and stand before Him through and only through Christ. And in Him, God takes our sin. He removes our sin. He pours His wrath on our sin. And He clothes us in his righteousness. We should stand, we should come into God's presence, and we should be destroyed like these men of Israel. We should be destroyed like the Philistines. We should be destroyed like Dagon, and yet because of Christ, we can now come to this holy and powerful and mighty and majestic and perfect God, and we will not be destroyed. Now we get to enjoy His presence. We get to enjoy His glory. We get to enjoy our God for all eternity, all because of the finished work of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for making a way. For us who should be destroyed as we enter into Your presence, You have provided a Savior who can save to the uttermost. So I pray for everyone here this morning as we hear Your Word and apply Your Word and we receive Your Word this morning as coming from Your mouth. It's breathed out by God. And we confess We deserve to be punished by You, God. We do not deserve to stand in Your presence. And we confess that we believe in the Savior, Jesus Christ, who has made a way for us. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And so we thank You for our mediator. We thank You that we will be able to draw near to You right now Because Jesus is interceding for us. We thank you and we give you all the glory that you deserve and are worthy. Of all glory, all power, all might, all wisdom, it belongs to you, God. And we give you all glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message given by Mike Pluniak during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.